discipline is as serious to the healthy life of a Christian as any other act of personal or corporate worship. And that Jesus says, in effect, that godliness and discipline are of the substance of true worship. Now, the other point that Jesus makes in this passage, which we're not going to have time to look at in any detail, but it's perhaps the more obvious of the two anyway, is that the proper exercise of discipline is an essential antidote to murder. If we do not exercise godly discipline, then we are certainly ripe to the murder of the heart, as well as physical and verbal murder that we are by nature so prone to. But I want us to spend a few minutes that we have for this lesson on this first point in particular. According to our Lord Jesus, the necessity for restoring restorative discipline is as urgent as the requirement for worship. So let's uh, see what he has to say in the passage in Matthew. If you've already turned there, or you can turn there with me now. Chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. This passage, of course, comes in the setting of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and in a setting particularly where Jesus is contrasting his teaching to the oral traditions of the rabbis and the other ecclesiastical leaders of his time. So he begins each one of these sections, you have heard it said, but I say. And I'll just remind you parenthetically that he's not contrasting what he said to the Old Testament scriptures but to the oral traditions that had arisen around the scriptures and in many instances really falsified those. Well, in verse 21, he comes to talk about what it had been, they had heard, do not murder. But the verses that we're particularly concerned with come right in the midst of that discourse in verse 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is saying that it is just as important, indeed even more important, that you be reconciled with your brother than that you express yourself in personal and corporate worship. Now, there's a background to Jesus' command here, and it's a familiar background, especially if you're aware of the emphasis on worship that we find throughout the Old Testament. And it's there in the New Testament also, except perhaps not highlighted as vividly as in the Old Covenant Scriptures. And that is that our approach to God, which is what worship is all about, ought to heighten and intensify our ethical sensibilities. When a person worships, he is coming to stand in the presence of the living God. He is coming to behold the glory of the holiness, the spotlessness, the blamelessness of the God of the universe. And so it stands to reason that when someone is going to come into God's presence, that kind of a God, his own sense of his own sin as well as his own righteousness should be sharpened and tightened and tuned right up to the clearest manifestation. So we would not expect ethical sloppiness and worship to go hand in hand. Indeed, we would expect just the opposite thing. Any of us that might be invited next week to go for tea at the White House, perhaps, would be very, very concerned in meeting the President of the United States to know just what was the proper protocol, how we should behave ourselves. If you've never worried one day in your life, which is your salad fork, you probably will worry at the White House, because you would want to make sure that everything that you did was appropriate to the occasion. 
And you wouldn't go scruffing in there with, uh, you know, uh, uh, if you're a guy, uh, about four days of Canyon Meadows beard. You know, some of us come up here, and I can't do it this year because I have to look a little respectable, but, you know, I usually like giving my face a rest for a few days when I'm up here camping out in the wilderness up there uh, because uh, it, it's good for you to do that. But you wouldn't go right then... You wouldn't go right then into the White House and say, well, here I am, take me or leave me. Because the Pres would say, I'll leave you. You go back and shave and especially shower and then we'll talk. No, we would want to enter into the presence of a dignitary like the President of the United States in an appropriate fashion. So we'd be very, very concerned how we looked and how we acted. So how much more in coming into the presence of the Lord of glory ought we to be concerned about the attitudes of our heart and the words of our mouth and just how we behave? And yet, it is a paradoxical feature of worship that often just the opposite is the case. We become so familiar with the forms of worship, let's take morning worship on Sunday, for example, we know exactly what to expect, we know exactly what the preacher is going to say at the beginning of the service, more or less. There's slight variation. We know that we can expect three hymns or maybe four hymns. Once a month or so, we can expect the Lord's Supper. I mean, we've got a case. If we've been there for a while, we know what to expect. And so as a consequence, it's not mysterious anymore. It's not particularly surprising. And so we're less and less concerned about being ready and being prepared to come into the presence of God. Every once in a while, though, after we think we're really familiar and settled with what's going on, then something really unexpected happens. God shows up and throws all of our comfort, all of our familiarity, right into disarray. That happened to Isaiah. Now, one day he went to the temple. The last person he expected to meet there was Jehovah. I mean, he expected to see the priests. He expected to see the sacrifices. But he did not expect to see the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, with his train filling the temple. He didn't expect to see the seraphim standing above him, six wings, for hiding his face, hiding his feet, and flying. He certainly didn't expect to hear that angelic chorus saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. He had been to the temple a thousand times, and he didn't expect the doorposts and the thresholds to shake and the house to be filled with smoke. That didn't happen at church. It doesn't happen for us. That day it did for Isaiah. And what was his response? Woe is me, he cried, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. All of a sudden the lights went on, and he saw himself and that congregation. And he saw them in the light of the king. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. You see, if we really understand what's going on in the midst of all of those very familiar forms of worship, God meets with his people, and if we have eyes and hearts to see that, then we ought to be constantly broken and humbled before God. The Pharisees were classic churchgoers, templegoers. They know exactly what to say, exactly when to go, exactly how to approach God. And so the Pharisee says, Jesus walked into the temple one day and he stood there and he said, I thank you, God, that I am not like all of these crummy people around here that don't deserve to be here. I fast twice a week. I tithe. I worship. I pray. I sit and listen to long sermons. I give sacrifices. And I'm not like this tax collector. 
this drug addict, this homosexual, and how I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that. But Jesus says the tax collector, when he went to church, he knew who was there. And he did not dare even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, when we worship God, if we know what we're doing, if we know what's going on in the midst of all of those familiar forms, we should be a broken people. People who are aware of our sin and aware of the grace and the mercy of Christ who is free to forgive sinners and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's why God says over and over and over again that what he wants from his people when they worship is not their prayers or their offerings or their sacrifices. He wants their broken hearts and their humble spirits. And then he comes near. Isaiah 57:15 says that that transcendent God that sits above the circle of the earth, far removed from everything that he has created, comes near to the broken and the contrite heart of a sinner humbled in the presence of God. When the scripture defines false worship, it defines it in just these terms. False worship is form divorced from the heart. Form divorced from the heart. Isaiah 29, 13, this people draws near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's not true worship. That's false worship. Form divorced from heart. Or, again, form divorced from action, from obedience, from ethics. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, the Lord finds fault with Israel's worship. Oh, they were there on time. They were all in their places with bright, shiny faces. They all had the right offerings, the right sacrifices, the right prayer for the right time. But God says, I can't stand it anymore. It is a wearisome aggravation to me. Why? Because when you lift up your hands to me in prayer, he says, your hands are filled with blood. You're guilty. And you're not willing to confess your guilt. God wants action. The Lord requires obedience, said Samuel to Saul, and not sacrifice. So you can see that Jesus, when he's making these comments about how we ought to behave as we get ready to worship, is simply taking that emphasis from the Old Testament and now bringing it forward new, with new vividness. And he's doing it against the background of the Pharisees' treatment of worship, which, like everything else, tended to be hypocritical by definition. The Pharisees routinely drove a wedge between worship and holiness and concentrated on formally acceptable worship. You and I have the same kind of problem in practice, oftentimes, if not in principle. Oh, Jesus bashed them hard for their hypocritical abuses. They were the ones who knew how to tithe the little herbs and spices in their cabinets in the kitchen, and yet overlooked the weightier matters of the law of justice and mercy. And Jesus says they should have tithed all the little things, sure enough, but they should have been concerned about those weighty, substantial matters of the law even more so. God calls you and I as Christians to a worship which is true and authentic just because it is wholly ethical as well as acceptable in form. We won't look at them, but I'd urge you to look at those two references, Isaiah 58, 3b, 
through 7 and James 1.27, which tells us what true worship, undefiled worship, is really like. And he doesn't say a single word about the form of the worship. What's the fast that God requires? Set the captives free and feed the poor. That's the fast that God requires, says Isaiah 58. So Jesus, in giving these commands in, Isaiah 5, in, in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, is trying to teach us again about the ethical demands of true worship. I uh, put a few quotes for you in the outline from Calvin and his comments on these verses. Calvin says, The precept of the law which forbids murder is obeyed when we maintain agreement and brotherly kindness with our neighbor. To impress this more strongly upon us, Christ declares that even the duties of religion are displeasing to God and are rejected by Him if we are at variance with each other. Worship doesn't do anybody any good, says Calvin, if we are at variance with our brothers. So long as difference with our neighbor is kept up by our fault, we have no access to God. Strong words, but true. But if the worship which men render to God is polluted and corrupted by their resentments, this enables us to conclude in what estimation he holds mutual agreement among ourselves. If worship, which means so much to God and is cherished so much by him, can be polluted and ruined by our lack of reconciliation to one another, then we can see just how serious he takes reconciliation. Now, in order to understand and apply this passage properly, we really have to get a hold on what kind of worship Jesus specifically is alluding to in this passage. When he uses the phrase, when you are bringing your offering, which of course was made enough sense uh, to his uh, uh, hearers there at, at, in that setting, what does he mean for us? Because we don't ordinarily bring offerings anymore. Well, I think we need to understand, first of all, that there's a fairly common error in our understanding and therefore in our application of this warning. And that is to equate bringing your offering with coming to the Lord's table, participating in communion. Whether or not we've ever articulated it theologically, in a lot of people's mind, what Jesus is saying here is before you come to communion, clean up your act with your neighbor which means, depending on the church that you go to, you've got one time a year when you have to clean up your act with your neighbor, or four times a year, or maybe 12 times a year, or if you're really radical and you practice weekly communion, then you've got to clean up your act with your neighbor every single week. That was the practice in the Middle Ages, and that's why people got so upset when the Reformed people started celebrating communion more often. They said, that means we're going to have to get our lives cleared up more frequently, not just once a year. Because Romanism in the Middle Ages only required you to participate in communion once a year. And that, of course, meant that you had to go to the confessional and get things squared away. So when these guys started talking about frequent communion, it wasn't that they didn't like to take communion. That was fine, but they didn't like what led up to that. And so for many evangelicals, bringing your offering means coming to the Lord's table. Now, we know that that is a bad equation to make in terms of sacramental theology. We as Reformed say, no, there is nothing in the Lord's Supper that is an offering, is a sacrifice. It's not like the Mass that perpetuates the sacrifice of Christ and so forth. So we know that that's wrong on that theological level. But it's also very bad practical theology. 
It's a very bad way for us to live within the church to equate that matter of bringing your offering simply with the Lord's Supper. Now, that misunderstanding leads to a misapplication, and it is the practice of self-suspension and self-excommunication from the Lord's Supper at those times when the individual judges that he is out of fellowship with a neighbor as he approaches the Lord's Supper. And so there is a lot of encouragement in our churches as we get ready to take communion to make sure, are you right with your family? Are you right with your children? Are you right with your neighbor? Are you right with your boss? As if thinking through those things seriously is a necessary part of preparing to come to the Lord's table, but not necessarily an important part of coming to plain old ordinary Lord's Day worship, much less any kind of personal individual expressions of worship. And so as we fence the table, we try to encourage people to think very carefully, and then we offer them the option. You can either get your relationship with your neighbor cleaned up and come and take communion, or just volunteer not to participate this week. Now, is that what Jesus is really talking about? Is he saying you can worship or you can be reconciled? Take your pick? No, he's not saying that. Otherwise, he would have said, when you remember your brother has something against you, forget about worship. But he doesn't say that. First, be reconciled, then participate in worship. You must do both. It's not an option. And yet, oftentimes in our churches, self-suspension or self-excommunication becomes a respectable alternative to really seeking reconciliation with your brother. Because while the pastor is preaching the preparation sermon or while he's giving the words of instruction, fencing the table, you may be really unhappy that you've been angry with your neighbor in the church. But if you don't take communion that week, you won't think about it again for another month. And by that time, it won't bother you quite so much. And you can leave the irreconciliation to go. Month after month, year after year, Jesus means something much more, something stronger in this passage. In this context, he means by bringing your offering every formal act of individual or corporate worship. Let me say it again. Every formal, individual, or corporate act of worship. Now, why do I say formal? Well, because I'm thinking that informal worship really is a definition for the whole Christian life. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that your whole life, your body is to be presented a living sacrifice. So in a sense, everything that you ever do as a believer is worship. But because everything is worship, then in a sense nothing is worship. It's a little hard to define if it's that comprehensive. But there are a lot of times when we formally approach God in worship as an individual. Think of your prayer time. Think of your family devotions. Think of your personal Bible study, quiet time. Think of Wednesday night prayer meeting or discipleship groups. Think of Lord's Day worship services. All of those things are expressions of formal worship where you expect to come into God's presence by yourself or with your family or with your church. It's all worship. And Jesus says when you approach any of those kinds of worship and you remember that your neighbor has something against you, then first be reconciled to your brother, then participate in worship. So Jesus is not saying you can wait till next month when you take the Lord's Supper before you wrestle with this issue. He says before you pray again, 
before you have devotions again, before your family meets for worship again, before you go to church on the Lord's Day, or celebrate the Lord's Supper, you have to face the responsibility of seeking reconciliation with your neighbor. Calvin puts it this way, by a synecdoche, which means one thing standing for the whole thing, he takes a single class of worship to express the outward exercises of divine worship which in many men are rather the pretense than the true expressions of godliness. Whatever we offer to God is polluted unless at least as much as lieth in us we are at peace with our brethren. So you see, the real application of this passage doesn't just revolve around fencing the Lord's table. Are you right with your brothers and sisters in Christ when you come to communion? It really involves fencing worship. And so you're going to sit down and you're going to say grace before your meal. And you're going to have to fence that prayer. I'm coming into the presence of the living God. Am I at odds with my brethren? Am I tolerating reconciliation? If so, then I better not say grace until I have taken steps to put this right. In one of the books on the book table, the title of which escapes me right now, there's a little story told about a grandmother with, a, with her grandson, and the grandson is down next to bed, and he's praying the old child's prayer, you know, if I should die before I wake, and he stops there. The grandma kind of wonders, and he gets up, and he runs out of the room, he's gone for two or three minutes, and he comes back again. The grandma says, well, what were you doing? He says, well, I went in the other room, and I set all my brother's toys on their heads, because I knew when he saw them, it would make him mad. And then I prayed, if I should die before I wake. And I thought, if I die before I wake, the last thing he'll remember about me is that he's angry because of my sin. So I went and put his toys right side up so I could finish my prayer. That's what Jesus is getting at. Just as important as communion with God is your communion with one another in that common life of fellowship. And sin divides us, it will divide us, but we need to be concerned to bring it back together again. And the consequences of disobedience in this area are very, very serious. Jesus points to divine and eternal judgments. In verse 22, the verses just preceding, he's been talking about our speech to our brother. And he says, if anyone is angry with his brother, he's subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The Pharisees were willing to grant that there would be certain penalties for certain kinds of sins towards one another, but Jesus says those penalties are much more serious. You can lose your fellowship with God if you continue to tolerate broken fellowship with one another. It's just that important. God takes his worship very seriously. He guards it very jealously, both the way of approach and the manner of approach. And here Jesus, speaking from God, says, when you're preparing to worship, you must put a priority on reconciliation. So what should we do if, when we come to worship God in any way, whether it's private prayer or devotions, Bible reading, or whether it's family worship or worship in the local church, when you realize that your brother or sister has something against you, what should you do? Let me just hit these real quickly, and uh, then we'll probably have to stop for today or this morning anyway. The first thing to remember, an MB is an abbreviation for pay close attention to this. It's Latin, but uh, NB is shorter. The issue of concern, of 
this irreconciliation should usually arise well before you come to corporate worship and the Lord's Supper if you are thinking about reconciliation in connection with every kind of worship. See, if you have a big fight with your wife and you're angry with her and she's angry with you, and then things blow over, you may not think about it until Sunday morning if you're just thinking about that as worship. Or if you're thinking about it just as communion, it may be three or four weeks before you're getting around to thinking about it. But if you're following Jesus' instruction, if you've had a knockdown, drag-out fight with your wife about what's for dinner, and then you sit down and say, let's ask God's blessing on our dinner, it ought to immediately come to mind, I can't pray until I talk to my wife and we make peace on this subject. So that means long before church, long before communion, you have already faced and settled the issue of reconciliation. Jesus' words urge us then, in a second place, to settle the matter quickly. If you remember while you were offering, I mean, there's the offering, to use the Old Testament forms, you know, maybe the priest has already got it chopped up and he's about to lay it on the altar to burn it. And then you remember, oh no, so you say, wait a second, give me five minutes, and off you go, dashing quickly to make peace with your brother so you can come back again and not keep that priest waiting for hours and hours all afternoon with a long line of people offering sacrifices for you to finish your offering. There's an urgency, there's an immediacy, there's a quickness that's involved. So Jesus, in effect, is saying the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians 4.26 when he says, in your anger do not sin, and then what's the command? Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. That's where anger ceases to be righteous and starts to be wicked when it becomes a day old. Well, Jesus is saying another way. You will have multiple occasions every day to worship God. And if you are settling matters with your brethren in that approach to God, then you should have things well taken care of before the end of every day. So in a sense, Paul's command, don't let the sun go down in your wrath, you know, that's the liberal version. We always think, wow, sundown, that's too soon. But Jesus says it should be quicker than that. Unless, of course, you're willing to concede that day after day after day goes by without you praying. Day after day after day goes by without you meditating on the Word of God. Day after day after day goes by without family worship or devotion. When you remember, deal with the matter quickly, says Jesus. You can't always settle the thing, but you certainly can try. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 18, As much as it is possible for you, live at peace with all men. You may start to pray over the dinner, and you may say, oh, I've got to settle things with my wife, and she may still be too hot to let things be settled. But you have to apologize. You have to do all you can to be at peace with her, and God will deal with her as well. Calvin says when we are commanded, or when he commands them to leave the gift before the altar, he expresses much more than if he had said that it is to no purpose for men to go to the temple or offer sacrifices to God so long as they live in discord with their neighbors. You see, Jesus could have put it that way, offer an alternative. Since you're not willing to be reconciled, don't bother worshiping. But Calvin rightly points out, Jesus is saying much more than that. You have to worship. That is an urgent, urgent need for Christians. And just so urgent and more is the fact that you can't worship a right until things are dealt with. 
I think that's the big problem with self-suspension, reducing this command to something like that. Jesus is not providing an alternate method for church discipline from that which he outlines in Matthew 18, so that we can just suspend ourselves from the Lord's Supper, and then that's okay as an alternate plan of discipline. If you find, and I'd exhort you in this, if you find that you really are unrepentant over an irreconciliation with a brother, then the thing to do is not suspend yourself from the Lord's Supper. The thing to do is to go to the elders and accuse yourself of rebellious irreconciliation and say, you men need to work with me because I'm not dealing with it. I am that hard of heart. I'm willing to forego communion rather than go to my brother. And that speaks of enough stubbornness and hardness of heart that I need help from somebody beside myself. I can't deal with it all alone, so you discipline me. Our black book talks about people coming as their own accusers before the session. Rarely ever happens. But if it was to happen, this would be the circumstance where someone says, you know, I didn't take communion last month because I was angry with my friend in the church. I resented him. And I didn't go all this month long, and now here I am, back to communion again, and I got the same problem, I have the same conviction, but it isn't working. Well, then rather than just saying, I'm not going to take communion again this month and let it go for another month, then you ought to make an appointment with the pastor or the elders that afternoon and say, this can't continue. And if you have the courage of your convictions about needing to put things right, you'll do that. Then the fourth thing, by way of application, is that for these reasons, you see, you cannot leave the church because of interpersonal problems. People have a hard time. They don't like to hear this, but I believe it is biblical and true. Until we have done everything that we can do in terms of biblical steps towards resolution, we are not at liberty to forsake the fellowship of a local church. And when we do that, as Jay Adams has rightly pointed out in his book on church discipline, we are in effect making a judgment about the church. We have done everything that we can to seek reconciliation, and the machinery has broken down in that fellowship. They no longer discipline pastorally in accordance with the word of God. And so they do not have that mark of the church and are no longer an effective church. And that's a very serious, serious thing to do. And yet, how many is the time, even in our OP congregations in this presbytery, where people will go from OP church to OP church to OP church, and everybody knows that's because they had a fight in the previous church, and they wouldn't do anything about it. So we allow ourselves to run away from God's shepherding care. Now, sometimes every effort has been made, and it hasn't been successful. And then maybe the person just hasn't had the nerve to go ahead and bring a formal accusation against the whole church, the whole session. But at least efforts have been made to try and bring about healing. More people leave the church by violating the fourth membership vow to submit to the government and discipline of the church than for any other. I've never seen anybody leave an OP congregation that I've pastored because they don't believe the Bible anymore. Never had anybody leave because they don't believe Christ is the only Savior anymore. They don't leave because they believe, or cease to believe, in theory at least, that they ought to live a holy life. But they do leave frequently because they do not want to submit to the discipline of the Lord as it's ministered in the local church. Now you might say this is too strong, too, too much. Well, I don't think it's stronger than the way Jesus puts it, and certainly we ought to understand why he puts it 
in such strong terms. For Jesus, more than any of us will ever know, worship and obedience cannot be divided. Jesus knew that in a very unique way, his entire ministry was an offering to God. And if it was going to be acceptable, it had to be in every detail faithful and obedient. And so it was. False worship divides worship from obedience. But perhaps even more, we as Christians, as evangelical Christians, as Reformed Christians, confess that reconciliation, bringing enemies together, is the heart of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. He reconciled us in one body through his cross, so we say. We believe that reconciliation is the heart of our worship. God's sinful people draw near to him in worship because of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. We believe that reconciliation is the heart of the gospel. It is the message. God was in Christ, says Paul, reconciling the world to himself. And so we confess, or ought to confess, that reconciliation is at the heart of the body life, the common life of the church. But you see, when we are unwilling to do what Jesus says about seeking reconciliation and disciplining one another towards reconciliation, our, word, our actions are really giving the lie to the gospel that we preach. We tell men who are outside of the church, come and be reconciled to God. But then our practice says, once you have come into the church, you'll never see any more reconciliation going on from there on out. Well, that's ridiculous. It can't be that way. The message that attracts men to God must keep us together and growing together in reconciliation. Well, I'm just going to skip the second point because the music is playing and we're five minutes past. I didn't give you time to ask questions. I apologize. I will do that at the beginning of tomorrow, but I'll also stay here and answer questions right now. But do think about this, please. In many ways, this is one of, I think, the most critical weaknesses in our own reform practice of discipline. We don't do it quickly, urgently, earnestly enough because we don't see its co direct connection with worship itself. The Philistines are upon us. 